difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Genevieve Kosky, Tosh Robinson, and Keith Phipps. On last week's show, we talked about Lost in America, Albert Brooks's satirical comedy about yuppies trying to drop out of society. And now we're bringing in the new Chloe Zhao film, Nomadland, in which Frances McDormand doesn't drop out of society by choice but opens herself up more readily to the lifestyle of rootless, free-living Americans. The opening titles of the film inform us about the town of Empire, Nevada, which so completely emptied out after the closing of the U.S. gypsum plant that its zip code ceased to exist. Fern, played by McDormand, lost her job in her home along with her husband in Empire, and now she's living out of her van, taking gig work wherever she can get it. After a winter working at an Amazon fulfillment center, Fern strikes out to the desert in Arizona, where she finds a community of like-aged nomads who have figured out how to survive together and apart. She also starts making friends, most notably with a fellow nomad named David, played by David Strathairn, who helps get her a job at Waldrug in South Dakota and draws her deeper into his life. Nomadland isn't plot-driven by any means. Instead, it's mostly about Fern observing and adjusting to life on the fly, which is full of uncertainty and wonder. We'll talk more about it after the break. You are one of those lucky people that can travel anywhere. Yes, ma'am. And they sometimes call you nomads. My mom said that you're homeless. Is that true? No, I'm not homeless. I'm just houseless. Not the same thing, right? No. My husband worked at the USG mine in Empire. I was a substitute teacher. It is a tough time right now. You may want to consider early retirement. I need work. I like work. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Welcome to Badland Spa. What the nomads are doing is not that different than what the pioneers did. I think Fern's part of an American tradition. Oh, he's going to come right through the glass. My dad used to say, what's remembered lives. I maybe spent too much of my life just remembering. So, yes, I think we've already given our listeners a preview of how we feel about <laughs> Nomadland, <laughs> but maybe we can expand on expand on why we love No Man Land as much as we do. Uh, uh, Genevieve, let's start with you. What are your thoughts on No Man Land? I mean, it's just, it's such a beautiful film. And I don't just mean in terms of like the images on the screen, although it is very beautiful in that way. But like, the structure of this film, like you said, it, it wasn't plot driven. And, and that's true. But its vignette structure is just so smart. And the character of Fern, the way she sort of unfolds before us through these vignettes is... I think just really incredible, both on a performance level from McDormand and just sort of a, a characterization level in in terms of the script such as it is. Although I admit I haven't looked too deeply into the 
like scripting part of this, but I know that Zhao once again used like sort of real people performers in this as as she did in in The Rider, another film that I absolutely loved and which this has a lot in common stylistically. And in terms of that style, I think what I respond to most with Zhao is how she kind of toggles back and forth between these giant vistas, these sort of like big scope images, and these very, very intimate, up-close monologues, conversations. I think in a film like this that is, you know, really kind of interested in the idea of being alone, but not necessarily lonely, it's kind of really effective to have that contrast between like the bigness of the world and sort of the smallness of the individual experience within this world. And it's just, it's a film that makes me just emotional on a style level, I think. Yeah, I think also if if you hear what this film is, which is a narrative adaptation of a nonfiction film about economic peril, essentially, and then the, and then the people who live a fairly perilous existence because of, of the economy. You kind of imagine a film that's very different from this. Like maybe something like Fast Food Nation, which I actually like, but, but definitely a narrative film that's trying to make a political point. And this doesn't do that. I mean, that's not mm-hmm. absent from here, like the commentary on the gig economy and inequality. All that's in the film, but it's not the entirety of the film. That's that's part of what I, what I like about it so much. Yeah, I, I feel like part of why I love this film is because of all of the things that it isn't. I feel like when we started out, I had this immediate response that was like, oh, this movie. I've seen this movie a thousand times. This is Wendy and Lucy. This is Frozen River. This is a film about grinding poverty and how living in it means you're one bad decision or one bad day away from complete and total ruin in an escalating way that you're just never going to come back from. And I have really... I'm not going to say loved, uh, but like respected and admired a lot of films in that vein. But there's that feeling of dread that comes in when you see somebody living in poverty in a, a miserablest movie. And you know that all you're waiting for is the big blow that's going to destroy them, destroy their lives. And as this movie stretched out and just repeatedly was not that. And as Genevieve says, as it carefully unfolds who Fern is and just bit by bit gives you access into different aspects of her mind and her world, it was a never-ending surprise for me. Like every moment of it kind of ended up being a revelation of you're not doing all of the things I expected. You're striking out on your own. The message of alone but not lonely just seems to so fly in the face of American cinema and how it expresses relationships. And that the sequence at the end where she's just traveling and you're just seeing chunks of America is uh, as beautiful as anything that I saw on film in 2020. This movie just kept surprising me. And that's one of the things I love in in movies. Yeah, it was really something to watch this film in a quarantine year because it's so wide open. and Mm. so so about an America that that we didn't really have much access to this year. This is going to be a little bit of a a tangent, but bear with me, because one of the things that reminded me of was this interview I did with Vincent Gallo around the the film The Brown Bunny. And one of the things that he said about The Brown Bunny and about America that stuck with me was the idea of America as a dramatic country, the landscape. And it was his way of kind of diminishing 
the French countryside, which which bores him. But I think that it's a good way to describe this film and this film's vision of America. It is full of emotion and possibility and deep uncertainty and you know a system that doesn't really work for people there's a fullness to it an excitement to it uh that is so uniquely american and uh that i i don't i haven't seen it expressed quite like this since american honey which i guess is another film that <laughs> that we we talked about too just just being able to see the wide openness of the country and also characters who are really on the fringes and really living hand to mouth. And uh, it, it feels so much like a great American, the great American movie, I guess, of 2020. Yeah, what's just so like kind of masterful about this movie to me is just its handling of tone and how it engages with these kind of high stakes as far as like, you know, one person's livelihood. But as as Tasha said, it never really descends into miserableism. Like Fern as a character is kind of just defined by I mean, her her sister says like kind of late in the movie that she's a you know, she was always been an eccentric, you know, she's always been someone who wanted to be outside and out there. And I think like when you have that context for Fern, you know, this situation that she's in doesn't feel as scary and doesn't feel as sad. And like you can kind of take pleasure in little moments of victory or beauty or like her finding what it is that she's looking for out on the open road. And it goes beyond being just about survival. The sequence at the end where she talks to Bob and they both open up to each other for the first time is just such a revelation. You know, it Mm -hmm. it puts everything you've seen into a different mode. It helps you understand who she is. And the fact that the movie is generous enough to give him his say too, and to really listen to the tragedy of his life and, and what he's feeling and thinking. Again, it just feels rare in American movies. You know, you're used to, there's the protagonist and the protagonist matters and everybody else is a background character. And the fact that the protagonist of this movie explains who she is, why she's done what she's done. And the film gives equal weight to a relatively minor character who still just kind of puts a face on what the movie is really talking about, which is not necessarily just Fern. I think it's just a really good structural choice. And it fits with Fern as a person. Like one of the things that struck me on as a second watch and I didn't like map this out, so I don't know. There may be an instance where where this doesn't apply, but I, pretty much every case I can think of where she interacts with another person, if she approaches them, she is like open and conversant and like wants to know about that person. She's sort of like a naturally, I guess, a nurturing person or at least like curious about other people. But whenever someone approaches her, comes at her, even David, you know, sort of his advances, like she shuts down. She's not a person who responds to people caring about her. She cares about other people. And I think that sort of extends to her kind of consuming desire to work. She wants to be a useful person. She wants to be of service, I think, is how how Bob puts it in that amazing scene you mentioned, Tasha, that it's it's about being of service to, to other people. And that's, I think, what drives uh, Fern as a character. I mean, a, a couple of points. One, I think there's a real specific magic to Chloe Zhao's style, her mm-hmm. ability to the hybridization that she does between fiction and, and nonfiction, between real actors and non-professional actors. 
it's all very seamlessly composed and also executed in that you don't notice huge disparities between the real actors and the not non-professional actors and also fictional events and things that feel real and documentary like it all flows so well together and you know plenty of filmmakers have tried to do that and some to varying degrees of success but it's something that she does really really well yeah i leave this film the way i felt left the writers like i really don't know how she does it i don't know how she gets these just disarming performances out of a mix of professional and non-professional actors and also just finds these really composed beautifully composed shots at the same time I would love this movie wondering what the hell Eternals is going to be. Or her new werewolf movie or whatever, whatever that is. Can't wait I, to see I, the, the real people she brings into Eternals. The, the really, actual yeah, I, Eternals that she gets yeah. to talk about their eternal lives. Uh, I so don't, don't want her to abandon all of this because there's something she's, she's really regionally interested in in the dakotas especially i just i miss mm-hmm. i i'm gonna miss all of that the other thing i want to talk about we should talk about is francis mcdormand in this movie because i think i mean this is kind of a performance of a career for me or at least a very distinct among the performances she's given francis mcdormand to me is not someone you don't notice in a movie she gives performances that are you know and I, and I guess maybe it's the cohen thing she gives performances that where you where you notice the performing and she's out there i think in this movie what's so striking about her is how observational she is i mean there's so much about so many shots in the film where you're just kind of watching her watching her surroundings and the other characters and taking things in and expressing subtly empathy for people or interest in people and it's all very subtle and on the face. And she just thinks really, you know, you can see her thinking in an interesting way. I just think I find her presence in this film so riveting, but not at all like conspicuous or she doesn't like try to do too much with this role. One of my favorite little moments of, I guess, physical performance is when I think it's in the Badlands segment where they're in that like really wild, like rock formation. And David is like giving a sort of a tour and she like scurries off among the rocks, you know, and she like almost physically bounces away, you know, and there's just this sense of a desire to explore and a desire to connect with, you know, a world on her own terms, not listening to someone else tell her about it. And it extends right to how she... (laughs) How she physically walks out into that area. There's lots of little stuff like that is when she's engaging with with nature, you know, when she's bathing in a river or staring at a redwood, you know, the sort of juxtaposition of her against these like massive vistas, the way that she's able to sort of bring character to those moments and make it about not just the beautiful scenery, but about fern within that scenery, I think is, you know, that's McDormand's doing. For me, it's all about sequences like the one where a straight edge character approaches her and she just so clearly doesn't want him there and yet wants to be polite. Like she has the exchange with him over the uh, exchange pile that's very much, all right, I will talk to you, but only on my terms. And then she tries to go away and then he keeps pushing her and then he tries to help her and he breaks something precious to her. And you can just see it every moment in that interaction how she's struggling to be Midwestern polite and how much she wants him to leave and how much he enrages her when he breaks those dishes. 
and how much she fights to control herself and be, if not as polite, at least some polite and to not blow up. And the different layers there going on of what she considers safe and what she considers cordial, what she considers appropriate and what she's actually feeling. I think you can you can feel all those layers in her performance. It's so good. So I, what do you make of this? I'm struck by everyone using their real names down to David Strathairn. I don't know if you've read any profiles of McDormand around this film, but this is this is an interesting detail where she told Joe Cohen in her 40s that, quote, when I'm 65, I'm changing my name to Fern. I'm smoking Lucky Strikes, drinking Wild Turkey. I'm getting an RV and hitting the road. And there's that moment in the movie where they find her under her name under MCD on when she's looking for a name at the Amazon warehouse. And the quote here, and this is from a Vogue profile, which is which is worth reading. Victoria says of Zhao, she incorporated a lot of my truth into Fern's truth. So I wonder if some of that lack of performativeness that you usually associate with her, Scott, is is maybe come from a little bit of um kind of alter ego uh, or, or projection going on with, with this performance. This is like your yeah. Chris Gaines type yes. of thing. <laughs> Fern, Fern is her Chris Gaines, yes. I will say Fern is one of my all-time favorite names. I have mm, I have never one. not met a cool Fern in my life. So. I don't know if I've ever met a Fern. Oh, I've, I've met a couple, but yeah. Uh, yeah, they've been pretty badass, both of them. I've met a Velvet Have you ever, once, have you, but, have you ever been between two Ferns? Oh, boy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I feel like I'm caught in Charlotte's web here. It's an awkward <laughs> experience, let me tell you. So there's lots of other things to talk about. You know, one of the th- aspects of this film is that part of this is a, is a personal journey of exploration, etc., finding herself, finding America, uh, that kind of thing. But Fern also just needs work and is desperate and is living in a van. So in one of the things that she has to do is take gigs. And so, what, I mean, th- how resonant was this film to you now about the gig economy, especially getting a glimpse inside an Amazon fulfillment center? That to me was kind of astonishing that they were even allowed to do it. And then just you get to think about what it's like to work in one of those places. I think like on a large scale societal level, it's definitely unsettling to like be presented with this reality of how so many people get by now. But I think again, like on an individual character level, it didn't make me sad for Fern. It kind of seems like the right fit for her as we get to know her over the course of film. And like, you know, we get a little bit of backstory late in the film about how she like moved to Empire with her husband to and like, it appears she just kind of sort of bounced around like job wise there like she and I think it's actually, you know, especially in the pandemic, I feel like we're having a lot of conversations about like, your identity being too tied to your job. I know that's something like I struggle with, maybe all of us do to a certain extent. So I think like in that context, there is maybe something a little freeing about not being defined by a career or by a job, especially when it's put in the context of this like literal freedom of, of, you know, open road. And yeah, like it's, it's difficult. I don't know that I would ever characterize it as desperate. The word you used, Scott, I mean, she definitely needs money, but I don't ever, again, get a sense of desperation coming from her. She's like such a pragmatic person. And again, I think like a person who likes to work or feels fulfilled by work. So she 
to me anyway, seems to be someone for whom the gig economy works. But well, I mean, again, her, her van breaks down and she can't pay for it. <laughs> right. You know, right. Uh, I mean, and, and I mean, we'll probably talk about this in connections and like she does have a safety net of her sister, which she does not want to use, but she is able to use so that maybe colors the idea of, of how desperate, you know, she is. But I mean, I don't I don't want to underplay like the difficulty of the life that she is leading. But I think in the end, I come away from that depiction of her life as ultimately being a satisfying one for her. I think the film finds a good balance between showing this lifestyle as a lifestyle that works for her personally without romanticizing it Mm -hmm. as somebody that everybody who's in it chooses. Right. I I don't think it ever portrays the gig economy or these warehouse jobs or these uh, itinerant worker jobs as idealistic jobs, you know, the the kind of movie thing where you quit your soulless corporate job and go work for a landscaper because you get to be outdoors all day, like that kind of fantasy. I don't ever get that sense here. She's made it work for her because she's kind of a freak and and her (laughs) sister calls her out for it. There are ways in which she just does not fit into society. And for this one individual person, it's working out. But at the same time, I I do think that all of these jobs are presented as pretty dire, unpleasant in a lot of ways, kind of heavy and depressing and, and repetitive, maybe none more so than the Amazon job with its sense of you're a seasonal worker. We're going to work you to the bone and then we're going to boot you out the door without a second thought, come back in a year. It's like how many people are living a lifestyle where that's plausible or feasible as a way of supporting themselves. I mean, aren't these all seasonal gigs, though? I mean, the wall drug gig, the gig where she's working at a, at a camp ground. The beet harvest. The, the beet harvest. harvest in Nebraska. Right. Sure. Well, some exactly. of them are exactly. seasonal. I mean, the beet harvest, obviously seasonal. The Amazon job, seasonal. I don't get the impression that the working at the wall drug hot dog ateria is necessarily seasonal so much as it's temporary for her. You know, sure. she she is already planning to move on when she. I imagine there's, there's a tourist there. season that's, that's heavier than than others. Yeah, wall drug, which uh, I've been to. I don't mean to brag, but <laughs> what an amazing place! Has anyone else been to wall drug? No, I had to actually like look it up because I definitely like had seen some. I'd seen the dinosaur, you know, like I, I knew like some of the iconography, but I didn't like know what it was exactly. It's it's so. like the the tourist trap to end all tourist traps. Yeah. Uh, you'll see if you drive through South Dakota, you'll see signs for it for miles and miles. But I did, I did, I was amused because there is a picture of young me next to that miniature Mount Rushmore um, <laughs> that, is, that apparently has unchanged over the years. I, I, be, I have a feeling our friend Emily has been to Waldrug. <laughs> Undoubtedly. I loved the, the a very tiny moment that stuck out to me of her kind of attempting to take a selfie in front of the little miniature Mount Rushmore, contrasted with the scene of few scenes earlier of David taking a picture of her in front of the dinosaur. I just think it again, it kind of yeah. highlights her her lonerness, I guess, but also sort of what she gives up in that. David kind of gets it though, in a, in a way that, that the offer that he makes to her is kind of like, I can get you a job at Wild Drug, and you know, there's a, I got a really cool place to park, <laughs> you know, my band <laughs> or whatever. And like, that's good enough. I mean, that that job, you know, you can make do with that job. You got a kind of a nice place to park. Yeah, let's do it. And there's something nice about it. It's very interesting to see how those two relate to each other and sort of drift in and out of each other's lives, and also just contemplate the backstories for each one of them and their similarities and differences in terms of their connections to their families 
and for Ferna, and I guess maybe this is something we can talk about in connections. You know, before the film begins, I mean, I think we can see that the life that she was promised, uh, the life of owning a home and, and having a stable job, was taken away from her. <laughs> you know, and so and this is a react. This is a reaction to that too, of just like I can't. Nobody's going to be able to kick me out of my home. I don't have to rely on this job. I don't have to stay in one place. I, you know, there's a certain amount of control that she can kind of have over her destiny uh, because it was everything was taken away from her at the beginning. I love the bookend scenes with the storage unit, just in terms of kind of underlining, you know, the letting go that this character kind of goes through, you know, of her, you know, beginning the film, putting all her stuff in storage and smelling her, I'm assuming her husband's old, old coat, you know, and kind of you know, hanging on to these memories, the dishes, you know, and sort of these, um, she, she hasn't fully disconnected from her, her old life, you know, and then a full year later, we're back at the storage unit and she's just getting rid of it all. And she's committed to this new life. And yeah, maybe it's a little neat, but you know, I'm, I'm a sucker for well done structural storytelling like that. Okay. Uh, well, well, let's, uh, wrap up our discussion of Nomad land there, but then bring it back so soon in connections. <laughs> uh, uh, so we'll be right back after the the break to talk about the connections between Nomad Land and Lost America. Okay, uh, what we've got is parts and labor, twenty three hundred dollars okay. and tax. I just looked up the value on your van. With that high a mileage, you're looking about. $5,000 at the most. I'd probably recommend um, taking that money and putting it towards a different vehicle. Yeah, so no, well, I can't do that. I can't do that. See, cause, all right. Um, I uh, uh, spent a lot of time and money building the inside out, and um, a lot of people don't understand the value of that, but um, it's not something like you can. I live in there. It's my home. But now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. And I guess the most obvious one here is that we're dealing with three characters here in two films who are dropping out of society. Genevieve? Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> that, that exact phrase is uh, used uh, multiple times in, in Lost in America. Maybe it might even be the title of this episode. I haven't, I haven't decided yet. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but I mean, I think it's obviously a really strong connection between these films, but it's also a big point of contrast because, you know, in Lost in America, it is obviously something they do by choice and by, you know, sort of perhaps a, a misguided <laughs> sense of, of what awaits them. And, you know, in uh, Nomadland, it is it is not a choice on Fern's part, but it is something that, you know, as, as we've discussed, she ends up embracing and as also we we discussed is maybe sort of uh intrinsically tied to her her character and her personality in a way that uh, it is not uh into the uh the couple and lost in america like fern is built to drop out of society yeah david and, Linda and, I, and are I think not. There's, there's a in lost in america with the with david especially there's the the idea of dropping out of society is a way of adding a certain amount of borrowed credibility <laughs> that he doesn't mm -hmm. have uh mm -hmm. you know i mean there there's an integrity to making a choice like that that 
they neither, they don't live up to in the way that they drop out of society, but that he tries to exploit or explain in a lot of different circumstances. In the circum, you know, when he's trying to get a nice room at the desert in, or when he's trying to uh, talk to the cop about what their whole plan is. I mean, it, we're dropping out of society. I mean, it becomes sort of a running joke of the movie when, in fact. There's really no no point at which they drop out of society, really. Uh, at least, certainly, uh, you know, even even when they lose money. I think with Fern, also, you get the sense that her years of marriage and steady employment and settling down were not a natural state for her in some ways. Mm-hmm. That that you know, it was sort of a that was a chapter in in an existence that kind of wanted to be a little more peripatetic. Ooh, good word, Keith. <laughs> <laughs> On some level, I feel like the difference between these two movies' approach to dropping out of society is Fern withdraws from explaining herself to people, whereas uh, mm-hmm. David and Linda can't stop telling everybody how they've mm-hmm. dropped out of society. It's a badge of honor for them. It's a phrase that they love because they have an image of what that means, that they're kind of holding up and waving in everybody's faces kind of aggressively. And I don't know that Fern thinks of herself in anything like any of those terms. I don't know that she thinks of herself in relationship to society or having been in society. It it feels like she's just doing her thing and she doesn't need to explain to people what that is for the most part. Whereas David and Linda need to explain it to everybody because they're so proud. <laughs> you just reminded me of one of my favorite gags in Lost in America where they had their going away party right. with the cake, cake that says, we're with you in spirit. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, just like the circumstances by which each starts their journey, you, you know, uh, obviously, the Dave and Linda's party is a, a far cry from Fern at the storage unit getting a, a hug from someone who she, you know, she maybe knew in her old life. But, you know, that's it. You know, there's no real send off because there's no town left to send her off. <laughs> imagine, too, you know, you can imagine, I guess, the Howard's you know, pulling up to the nomad camp in their RV and, and, and giving the wave and the, you know, hello, fellow kids, right? Uh, oh my I gosh, mean, like, the, I, that just made me remember the scene in Nomadland where they go to the RV show and like Fern, mm-hmm. is it Mary Lou, or Linda May? And was it Swanky? I, I, I don't know, but they like, you know, kind of play act in that giant Winnebago and talk about, you know, where they're going. They're going to Hawaii and it just like... It, it just it's a caricature of or not even a caricature, but it, it, it just it highlights how ridiculous uh, the Howards are in, in their giant Winnebago. <laughs> they're they're definitely taking that moment to check out whether the, the giant show RV has a browning element. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty sweet ride, I gotta say that I that, it's like that a RV discotheque. Is that what she said or, or something? <laughs> Oh, that that's pretty great, pretty great. And, and the fantasy is fun too of going to Hawaii and and uh, trying to go drive over water. So uh, you know we had to, uh, we have a list of topics we could go over, but I want to call an auto, audible here. I want to talk about the difference, the compare and contrast vehicles here because we haven't <laughs> talked about Fern's van, and uh, we have talked about the Winnebago. Maybe not, but I think it would be even more useful to talk about it in, in contrast to what she drives, which which is you know where every inch. The difference is the with Fern's van, every inch has to serve a purpose. Every item has to 
have a practical application. Whereas the Winnebago is the exact opposite, where it is, you know, is opulence on the road. It is obnoxiously big and 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 spaciousness is part of the point. And to me, I think as the if you wanted to show you know, the fundamental difference of these films was with just two objects. Those those would be the two objects you would point to. There's also just the difference between, if you know, Fern kind of makes the point of how she's constructed this space. She's carefully curated the objects within the space that enabled her to have shelving units or convertible uh, furniture or, or whatnot. Like everything in there is something she's built herself and know, knows herself. It's an extension of her identity in a way. It's a way of defining her space and, and making it her own. Whereas David and Linda go out and buy prefab escapism, they pull a very American uh, move by throwing some money at the problem and uh, poof, we're we're nomads now. We're uh, free people who live on the road like Easy Rider because of a thing we've purchased. And it ends up just being a very strong and visible contrast between somebody who is adapting to needing to live the way she does and people for whom it's kind of a uh, a prefab easily acquired status symbol and uh, kind of an ideal that they they can just walk into a, a store basically and say, we want to be easy writer now, make that happen. <laughs> right. And there's nothing personal that they're carrying as well. I mean, it's not just that Fern has thought about where she needs to put everything in the space and create everything for this space, but there are personal items like the plate that David drops that are meaningful to her. And so there's a past that she's not abandoning in any way. You know, she's not leaving everything behind. That's a little different than the Howards. The Howards, you know, there's nothing that they carry with them from their previous life, which underlines sort of the hollowness of that life. Well, and also like Fern has an emotional connection to her van. It has a name. Everyone names their vans, you know, hers is Vanguard. And oh, what was the other <laughs> van name we got? There was a, there was a really funny one. But it takes work to outfit a van, to maintain a van. You know, there's kind of a great little exchange with, with Swanky about her van being kind of shabby and her talking about how much work it is to paint a van, you know, and there's like this upkeep involved. But what really struck me is early in the film where she runs into some people from her old life in a store, uh, including like a teenage girl that I think she used to tutor. You know, the girl asks her or says her like, you know, mom says you're you're homeless. And Fern says, no, I'm houseless. And then when the van is having uh, mechanical problems and, and she's at the mechanic and, you know, she's kind of flustered and talking about, you know, why she put all this work into it and she, she can't. And then she just kind of stops and she's like, I live there. It's my home, you know, and it, it underlines that this van, it means something to her. You know, she feels connected to it in a way that Dave and Linda aren't connected to their Winnebago. It's a thing. It's a thing they bought fully furnished. They didn't put work into it. They haven't had to maintain it. It hasn't seen them through trials the way Fern's van has. You know, it's just, uh, it's another thing that they owned, that they bought. 
are, am I the only one who uh, of us who has like actively watched van life videos and like is, is vaguely <laughs> en- engaged with this this lifestyle? I okay. certainly have not. Tell me more. <laughs> it's a YouTube rabbit hole. You can you can go down if you are are so inclined. But you Genevieve, know, are you about to drop out of society? <laughs> I mean, I will not front. This is like definitely a fantasy that uh, Steve and I nurture you know i think we are both at heart too pragmatic to think it would actually happen but i think you know as a a pretty like practical person there is something about van life or schoolie bus life or you know these sort of like tiny mobile home movements that you know it is a thing where everything has a purpose everything has to make sense there's a lot of you can put so much thought and planning and effort into making the thing exactly how you need it to be for your life. And I think that just sort of aligns with my personality. Um, and, and maybe that's where the appeal comes from more than, you know, hitting the open road. Just in case, just in case anything happens. <laughs> Do you know anything about Steve's gambling habits? <laughs> <laughs> After this movie and uh, Uncut Gems, we had uh, discussions about how much I, I dislike gambling and how it would be over if he ever did anything like that. So he is well aware. (laughs) It's good to have open communication and relationships (laughs) that does not consist of screaming at each other at the Hoover Dam. Yep. The nest egg principle. Um, Speaking of. As we will now call it. So uh, one thing that I have been thinking about a lot lately independent of these films is you know how divided we are right now. I mean obviously that's a big topic and and, and how uh, people are in their little silos of information and echo chambers and left and right and, you know, red and blue. And like half the country loves Albert Brooks, half the country hates Albert Brooks. Exactly. (laughs) But, but, but there's like, but there is this interesting, these sort of silos are established in a way that, that people communicate or bridge that divide. I mean, and and that's kind of a, a really important theme in lost in America is how the Howard's, venture out of their little bubble and try to access this subculture that's appealing to them, something that they saw in Easy Rider, uh, something they may have dreamed about when they were young and probably didn't have as much money and had a little bit more freedom to roam a little bit. And now they're, they're incapable of doing it anymore. And they're incapable of having an exchange with other ordinary people <laughs> that makes any sense at all to them where they're really talking to each other in a, in a meaningful way. And, and of course, in Nomadland, you know, we get to visit this subculture that we don't see at all. This is a subculture of nomads that is invisible to us, uh, you know, on screen and in life, you would have to seek them out. And, and uh, I think there's just something interesting to me about how America's divisions are expressed in both of these films and how we all live in the same country, but they're just borders that don't get crossed very easily. I think maybe what speaks to that most is the conversation between Fern and her sister, where her sister just is making no effort whatsoever to understand her or listen to her. They just so clearly live in different worlds. And having spent so much time with Fern in her van, seeing how her sister lives, which is a a perfectly normal house. You know, it's not like she lives in some huge decadent McMansion um, where everything looks like it's made out of laminate. They live in a a relatively ordinary house, but it all looks very strange and weirdly fixed and like there's too much space after spending too much time in the van. 
which I think is a, a nice little piece of magic, like making an ordinary house look a little alien to us. But Fern doesn't put much effort into explaining her point of view. And her sister just very clearly assumes that her perfectly normal way of looking at the world is the only right way of looking at the world. And part of that is a just like a family thing. You get the impression that they've had these arguments a thousand times already and they don't fully need to reiterate them. It's almost like they're shorthanding. Uh, hey, remember the thing I always say here? Yes. Remember the response I always give you? Like that kind of thing. But I, it is just uh, that whole conversation, uh, like so much in Nomadland, could have been a lot more dramatic and uh, over the top and Oscar-y with a lot of screaming and a lot of self-definition delivered via speeches. And instead, you really kind of get the sense of just like an old, a long old divide uh, that's not going to be solved here uh, as it was not solved at any point in the past. It strikes me that the sort of subculture in Lost in America uh, is one that is drawn from a movie, you know, like the the idea of, uh, you know, tying your identity to something you saw in a movie is sort of a, a running gag uh, throughout the film. And in Nomadland, it's a movie that incorporates like actual people from an actual subculture. You know, there's this like element of reality to it. So even though they are both, you know, kind of technically narrative films, I think they are engaging with the reality of these subcultures in very different ways. We talked a fair bit about Bob Wells in Nomadland in the first half, but like, I really want to highlight Linda May and Swanky. Swanky especially, like, it was it's such a special part of Nomadland to me. And like, I love mm -hmm. that, like, in this glimpse we get into this really fascinating to me, uh, a, a subculture, you know, we get it in this very authentic way and these actual people who are actually living this this way. I think it's, again, something that Zhao is really adept at doing in a way that I can't think of any other current filmmaker that does that. Yeah, in the same sort of way that I enjoyed Lost in America's documentation of what Vegas looked like at a very specific time, at what New York City looked like at a very specific time. I really enjoyed just the documentation of this group of nomadic people who mm -hmm. were not likely to show up in uh, in other films or in other forms who we were never really likely to know about in the other ways. Lecture? That bucket lecture. <laughs> so good. Oh, so good. Yeah, that was good. So, yeah, just all of these little um, insights and inroads into an unusual lifestyle, but even more so just the documentation of these non-actors presumably talking about their lives or uh, slightly fictionalized, uh, fairly close to their actual lives version of their stories. I, I feel like it's just an act of documentation that's really touching and memorable isn't quite the right word. It's not that any given person's going to remember it so much as I'm glad that it's there to be remembered. I'm glad that it's being uh, recorded in a way that it can be remembered later. I think another place in Nomadland where we get that sort of like in the moment documentation is like the town of Empire, which I, I, I don't know if that was filmed in the actual town of Empire, because like in my research uh, before this, I discovered that uh, Empire was bought by the Empire Mining Company in, in 2016 and has, you know, been sort of like lightly revitalized. Like, I mean, like at its peak, only like a few hundred people lived there. Like it was never like a bustling town by, by any means. But like, seems like it's not like back to being an incorporated town, but it, like people do live there 
now. So that makes me curious if, you know, the scenes we see filmed there were actually filmed there or maybe just in in parts of it are still like that. I don't know. But in terms of kind of seeing this ghost town captured in amber in this moment in time, it's what, is it 2012, I Mm -hmm. I think? Yeah. That's also like kind of fascinating just in terms of sort of what was happening in the the economy uh, kind of all over the country at that point. But obviously it was especially devastating in this one town. There is just sort of a sense as she's wandering through the ruin of where she used to live. You can see what her lifestyle would have been like. You can see what that space probably would have looked like when it was their actual home when she lived there with her husband. And it's a cozy enough domestic space. But again, it just seems kind of alien compared to where we've been spending time with her. You know, having seen all of these just like beautiful road vistas, seeing this like tiny little cracker box in a row of cracker boxes where she used to live, it feels like a very oppressive environment uh, to possibly be stuck in while working in this job that eventually went away. But with a backyard that just goes on forever. Literally goes (laughs) on forever. God, what an image. That fence, that broken down fence leading out into the wide world. I mean, as a symbol, it doesn't get much more on the nose than that. But I still kind of loved it. But if the images are strong enough, the symbol can be obvious and it still works. Maybe it works even better. Yeah, as long as nobody actually says, you know, wow, the fences really have been broken down here. It's like... (laughs) It's like walking through this is like dropping out of society. It's like a land full of nomads. <laughs> but, but, yeah, anyway. <laughs> this is what the script would have been like if this movie was made in the 1980s. <laughs> One interesting behavioral contrast to me between the Howards and the characters in Nomadland is that the Howards never once kind of stop to look at the world around them and enjoy a lot of simple, beautiful things. I mean, that's sort of the whole point of the nomads here. I mean, they're, they're going to look, they're going to stop and point at the sunset, right? And the, you know, while they're in the middle of a conversation, they're like, Oh, look at this incredible sunset. Or they're going to, they're going to admire the shape of a particular rock. I mean, all of these things are, you know, sustaining wonders to them that the Howards are too, preoccupied or temperamentally incapable i guess of noticing i mean they're at the they're at the hoover dam and they get i mean the hoover <laughs> dam there's no it's just there. there there's no actually you know there's a joke about him you know about you know who wants to jump in first right. and that's pretty much all we get in terms of mentioning the hoover dam there is a little bit of hell is other people aspect to that because it it does seem like the reason Fern has the freedom to just stop and stand on the coast and look at the waves coming in is because she's alone. She's setting her own schedule. She's operating entirely on her own time. Whereas when the Howards are at Hoover Dam, they're surrounded by these just kind of gape inducing uh, spaces and they don't notice it because they're too busy arguing. They're too busy fighting about different aspects of what just happened. And in particular, David's just obliviousness to everything around him because he's he's so busy shouting just seems very telling about how little they pay attention to the world around them, how little they, they take it in. I, I feel like one of the 
the smarter, I don't know if this is a, a gag or a tragedy, but uh, little details in the film is when he starts screaming at his wife and the family grabs their kids and goes, uh, just like pulls them out and gets away. And then you've got the park rangers, presumably, given their uniforms, standing in the background, carefully watching to make sure this doesn't go south in some terrible way. But they're oblivious to their impact on the people around them, just as much as they're oblivious to their surroundings. They're oblivious to their audience. They're oblivious to the people they may be uh, frightening or alarming. And uh, their unawareness of other people just contrasts so sharply with the degree to which everybody in Nomadland seems to be just very aware of their fellow people, whether they want to spend time with them or not, whatever terms they want to choose to spend time with other people on. They're very aware of proximity. They're very aware of, of interactions. Um, and they're very aware of the memories they're making and, and how valuable they're going to be down the road when they lose each other. Oh, we've got a bunch of other connections that we noted down, and we don't want to get into too much detail with them just because uh, this is running long. We've been talking for quite a while, but I think just briefly, it is worth kind of noting the difference between the, the safety nets that the characters have in these two films. Fern, out on the road, is pretty much on her own, but does still have family to reach out to when she hits up against a crisis that she cannot immediately resolve. She still has options. She has somebody who cares about her enough to to help her out, even if it comes with a, a lecture and, and a bit of a price. But there's not much sense of that, that the Howards have a safety net, even though you see all of the friends that they have. They They have like a large and vibrant group of people that associate with them as their friends. But there's not really much of a sense that they have anybody to reach out to when the going gets tough. Maybe it's because they just don't think to. Maybe it's because they don't want the humiliation of admitting what happened or, you know, admitting their failures 12 minutes after setting out on the road. But they don't try to make those connections. It, it just doesn't seem like maybe they don't have the connections to begin with, or maybe they're ashamed because their troubles are of their own doing. Whereas it's Fern's fault, quote unquote, that she's living in a van down by the river, but it's not her fault that it breaks down. And it's not something that she can get through just by being tougher or, or smarter that she can immediately fix. But there's less shame involved in that, I think, than in what happened to uh, to David and Linda. Well, and also, like, David and Linda set off on this whole adventure with the assumption they do have this safety net. I mean, safety net's just another word for nest egg in this context, <laughs> you, you know. They definitely never would have done this if they didn't think they had all this money to fall back on, you know. And when they no longer have it, they lose it. And I'm brought back again to that scene of David in the employment office and him like asking, like, don't you have any white colored jobs? And it's like his, his safety net is just like the, his sense of privilege, his assumption that like, you know, there's going to be something for a guy like him to get him back on his feet. Like, surely he's not going to have to be a crossing guard, you know, and ultimately, like, that turns out to be true. You know, he's he's able to go right back to, to his job. He has to eat shit. And so I guess eating shit is, is their safety net. <laughs> it is. Uh, you know, we never really did talk about what loses him his job in the first place, which is, again, that incredible, incredible arrogant scene. sense of entitlement. That, that, that whole scene is, is hilariously Scott, funny and amazing. why are you amazing. doing this to the yourself? <laughs> I, you know, I'm like, just, I'm not, not going to rise to the bait. My God. But the scene 
that excruciatingly long scene that repeats the same joke ad infinitum for no, no apparent reason. Uh, he does it to himself and, and he does it to himself through rank entitlement. He feels that he's earned this job and he's so certain that he's irreplaceable that he's willing to call his boss names and uh, throw profanity at him when he doesn't get the thing that he feels he deserves. And you contrast that with like the very quiet, careful way that Fern moves through the world. I mean, part of his safety net is just assuming that nothing could ever possibly go wrong with him because he's too important. He's too valuable. Whereas Fern doesn't necessarily seem to think that anybody's going to find her necessary or valuable, but it's still very important to her sense of self that she quietly be useful, that she quietly be contributing. Phil Shabano did not deserve that job over... <laughs> Over David Howard, I, don't know. <laughs> I felt his sense of uh, indignity uh, in that room. Anyway, don't go to lunch with this man. Um, so uh, <laughs> uh, now, anyway. now but uh, you're laughing, Tasha. You're laughing at the, <laughs> the memory of the Don't go to lunch with this man. Uh, yeah, and all the, and the no, bit I'm about Brad, at, where he's Scott like where performing he's it. It's, Scott is definitely funnier than Albert Brooks. I think we can okay, all agree. Well, that's right. Yeah, here's the thing, though. As with any <laughs> joke that goes on too long. Uh, I can't watch Saturday Night Live. I haven't been able to watch Saturday Night Live since the oh, 1990s. No. Uh, those bits go on forever, and they're very, really uh -huh. funny. Somebody quoting yeah. you one line from it the next day is often a lot funnier. Because a line out of context is funny when your friend tells it to you does not mean you, you, you necessarily want to see it played out for 10 straight minutes. That's well, sustained brilliance, much like the short films that Albert Brooks contributed to <laughs> SNL in the beginning of their uh, period. Um, um, Scott, did so, you know he was? They approached him to be a, a permanent host for Saturday Night Live, and he I turned did them know down. That. Yes, he did. Why, wait, why would you know that? Why? Why would you know that? What, do you have some <laughs> I, kind of master's thesis on, on Albert Brooks somewhere? <laughs> I, I have. I, I wrote like one fifth of it. I wrote the real life chapter. That was, and then, and then the, and then the World Cup was on TV, and and, and I was get. I, it was clear. It was clear that I was getting the AV Club job, so I stopped doing. You, I stopped you, working you on also, it. I believe, wrote an essay of of note that applies to this particular pairing. I did. I wrote the I wrote the liner the Criterion liner notes essay for Lost in America. Talk about burying the lead. We got a celebrity here with us, people. <laughs> and beyond that, I was suggested. It was Albert Brooks himself who suggested me for the job. No. So uh, yeah. it was a uh, it was uh, the prettiest peacockiest feather in my cap. Uh, that whole thing, the whole experience. Oh, man. See, now I'm never going to get any uh, Criterion writing jobs recommended directly by Albert Brooks because of this podcast. Can we go back and re-record from the beginning? Lost in America, it's hilarious. It's the tightest 90 minutes of comedy you ever will see. And my friends are getting, my friends are all getting Albert Brooks related Criterion gigs because Donna Bowman, my oldest friend, super genius, has a whole segment on the a whole video devoted to her about theology and the new the upcoming defending your life criterion blu-ray uh so what can we pair yeah. with that what what can what well, anyway. well Tasha <laughs> might take the week off she doesn't like that film <laughs> uh, so lost america is currently rentable on all the major streaming services and of course as uh, we just noted it's available on criterion with an essay by yours truly uh, no we should know that is... while you, well, well, it's a good idea to buy that disc. You can also read Scott's essay on the Criterion site. <laughs> that is true. But, you know, okay, fine. You can do it that way, too. Um, I was proud of it. I thought it was pretty good. Uh, uh, Nomadland is now available on VOD. We'll be right back with your next picture show.
finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we recommend, especially in this age of widely available digital media that we all need to catch up on. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Tasha Robinson, what in the film world is good for you? When I was first watching Nomadland, it reminded me a lot of a lot of other road movies of, of different kinds. And I cited uh, Frozen River, which is not a road movie, but is a miserableism movie. That is what I thought Nomad was, Land was going to be. Wendy and Lucy, like sort of tonally, these movies came to mind. But the other movies that really kind of a uh, trip to trigger for me here are Sean Penn's Into the Wild and mm-hmm. to some degree David Lynch's Straight Story. I love Into the Wild. I think it's beautiful, but it's also a movie that very, very distinctly divided people that created that kind of love it or hate it kind of thing. And it's been a while since I've seen it, so I'm not going to get too far into it. But uh, the Stray Story recently arrived on Disney Plus, and it seems like a new wave of people are finding it as a result. And it's just one of those films that you want to you want to make sure everybody's seen. There are people that should watch it that haven't because it's a David Lynch movie, and his films can be very idiosyncratic and uh, off putting in some ways. And there are probably people who are more David Lynch fans who haven't seen it because the description, David Lynch's G-rated movie about a man traveling cross country on a um, riding mower to make amends with his brother um, at the end of his brother's life. Uh, Richard Farnsworth plays the the traveling man and his, God, his performance is just, it's an, it's an all time great. He's so amazing in this movie, but the cast in general is just really strong. The, Scenes in Nomad Land where nomads sit around the fire and quietly talk to each other. There's a, a bunch of that kind of thing in the straight story. There's a lot of that sense of uh, being out on the road and seeing the world, even if you're seeing it very, very slowly from a, a riding mower, um, but also just encountering unusual people, like very specific uh, rural people who have very specific problems and issues in their lives or, or things to say or share. It's kind of a specific low-key movie in that way. And just, I, I think people who like Nomadland, if they haven't seen The Straight Story, should seek it out. And if they haven't seen The Straight Story in, in quite a while, because it was hard to find for a little while there. Now it seems to be pretty readily available digitally everywhere. But uh, for a while, people didn't have as much opportunity as they had now. And I, I think they should take advantage of it. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you haven't seen The Straight Story, you absolutely have to see it. <laughs> it's essential viewing uh, if there ever was any. And to me, it's just, you think this is a huge left turn for David Lynch until you watch it. And it has, and then you watch it and you're like, it has that feeling. It's, it, is, it is a G-rated Disney movie based on a true story, but it has an eccentricity to it that feels just as Lynchian as his more transgressive films. It's a it's very much a David Lynch film, but it, it is also kind of it's a left turn in the middle of you know, your Lost Highways and, and your Mulholland Drives, which I believe this is the you know kind of bookend the, this this mm-hmm. film uh, or the or what came after that too. And and uh, uh, you know David Lynch can do whatever he wants to do, but it kind of makes me wish he would do you know kind of well, I wish he'd make more movies because I like his movies, but also that he would maybe kind of venture out of his his uh, comfort zone a little bit. Uh, more often like this. Which is like everybody else's discomfort zone. It's it's so strange that we talk about David Lynch's comfort zone. Sure. Given the 
uh, you know, the absolutely bizarre and difficult to parse uh, things he creates. I also wish that he would occasionally go back to this mode of just like very simple character work because he gets tremendous performances out of actors. He, you know, he's just a really good visual and oral stylist. And all of those things are on display in straight story without it kind of descending into the the nightmarish, like difficult to parse, emotionally difficult uh, areas that he he so often heads for. Keith, what's, what's good for you? So mine's uh, just kind of... Th- tangentially related to what we're talking about, more in, in sort of approach than anything else. But I've been working my way through the Agnes Varda filmography, which you can find there's a box set, Criterion Padata, uh, last year, which is gorgeous. And uh, it's all on the Criterion channel as well. And I got to a film I'd never seen before called, uh, I mean, and I may mispronounce it, uh, Daguerreotypes, uh, which is, of course, a early form of photography. Uh, it's a play on words, though, because it's, it's taken from uh, Rue Daguerre, which is where uh, she lived at the time um, and filmed in 1975, released in 1976. And it's basically kind of a film made out of necessity. She had a, a young child, so she couldn't really go anywhere uh, or, or you know, so, such was the arrangement that, that she was mostly staying at home. So she filmed her neighborhood. Uh, she went to different shops. She filmed shop life. She talked to her neighbors about where they came from. She talked about, uh, you know, what brought them to Paris, how long they'd been there, just filmed ordinary interactions. And it kind of connects what we were talking about, about, uh, you know, documentaries and non-documentaries, just kind of capturing how life was lived at a particular place in a particular time. And you can't get much more particular than, than you know, a single block or two in Paris. And it's a really it's, – it's, it's wonderfully done. And it's like a lot of her films, it's very sly and, and understated in many ways. Um, and it's uh, really – it's framed – the framework is this very lo-fi <laughs> magician – putting on a performance uh, one night, but also kind of cut between some really nice, like uh, rhyming cuts between magician's routine and uh, life in the neighborhood. I, I recommend it highly. Uh, as with most things, Agnes Varda, it's a good movie. She was a good filmmaker. Genevieve, how about you? Uh, well, I'm going to talk about something that is not remotely related to this pairing or, you know, really maybe even considered film. I don't know. It, it exists in that uh, TV film middle ground that uh, so it, much is it, media. Is it, is it Kibby? Is it Kibby? <laughs> Keep it? I never pronounced it. Quib- Quibby? Yeah, sure. That. <laughs> yes, I, I'm going to recommend Quibby, the defunct streaming <laughs> service from last Just year. Just the whole thing. <laughs> no, this, I guess, is technically a, a TV documentary. It's an hour long. And, you know, it's not necessarily a great piece of, of documentary filmmaking, but it's certainly the thing that everyone is talking about this week. And as I haven't been able to watch many movies recently, I am instead going to talk about the New York Times Presents documentary Framing Britney Spears, which uh, is on uh, FX and Hulu. And um, as I said, it's just sort of like what everyone is kind of talking about in in the culture this week. I'm sure by the time you hear this, it, it, it will be old news. But if you you know, weren't part of that conversation, or if, if you didn't watch it, it's sort of spurred by the uh, current Free Britney movement, which is sort of a, a call among uh, Britney Spears's fans to get her released from the legal conservatorship that she's been under, uh, that gives her father, uh, like, control over her career, her finances. As the documentary lays out, it's, like, very, very unusual. It's a very unusual legal uh, circumstance for someone uh, like Britney Spears to to be under. But the documentary itself is just sort of like a straightforward 
chronology of sort of the destructive media narrative around Britney Spears over the last 20 years. And, you know, formally, it's nothing that interesting. It's sort of like a talking head and clips based form. But it's I still think it's like really interesting just for the way it recontextualizes a story that all of us lived through and I think we're pretty aware of. I don't know how it, it, you know where you guys were of it, but I was certainly a Britney Spears uh, fan or at least a, you know definitely engaged in, in her career uh, during that time. And you know like we've seen a lot of these sort of recontextualization of the way that you know these destructive media narratives that get applied to women like, you know, your your Monica Lewinsky's, your Tanya Harding's, your Marsha Clark's, you know, and with Britney. Your Charisma Carpenter's. Yes, another good one. Uh, maybe not quite as high, high profile as, as Britney Spears, but, you know, definitely mm-hmm. in the in the same ilk. But the documentary kind of lays out how she always kind of existed in the public eye in this weird middle ground between like over-sexualization and infantilization, like right from the very beginning of, of, baby, of baby One More Time. And it's just created this really damaging narrative around her that culminated in this very sort of public breakdown that led to the situation that she's in now that uh, is, you know, honestly, like seems pretty sketchy. And it seems to sort of be maybe coming to a bit of a head now. As I said, it's not a perfect documentary. And there's like a lot, a lot, a lot it leaves out. And more than anything, it kind of makes me very curious about the feature length documentary we might get in another 20 years about Britney Spears. Um, Like she's not in it, her mom's not in it. There's some big absences in in the film that kind of like leave some big question marks hanging over it. But sort of, I think as a conversation starter, and as a sort of examination of how the media talks about celebrity, and especially women's celebrities, it's definitely worth checking out. Um, It's called Framing Britney Spears, and it is on Hulu. Have any of you seen it? I have not. No, I I want to. Yeah, Um, everyone's talking about it, and I have not seen it yet. I read an interesting piece, though, that sort of criticized the documentary for not examining the Free Britney movement as scrupulously as necessary and about how certain mechanisms, I guess, that were problematic in her career are also demonstrated mm. by that movement as well. Sure. I, I mean, like I said, there's, there's a lot the documentary leaves out. It's an, it's an hour long, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, it's like a news magazine uh, thing, right? Yeah. The New York yeah. Times well, sort of- yeah. And I mean, it definitely has that sort of feeling that it's like an article that's been turned into a, a video piece, an hour long video piece, but, um, but it's it's well done, and it's like I said, it's compelling. So um. it's it's a it has a you can you can enter it on Letterbox though, so it is a film. Oh, uh, all right, that's so <laughs> super not true. Oh my god, that is a terrible, <laughs> terrible definition of film. Um, but uh, you know, I take it to, back. That's a great definition a of film, to, if only uh, for trolling Scott. <laughs> to our for- former colleague and, and power listener, uh, Mike D'Angelo, who specifically <laughs> detests documentaries that are like things that could appear in print. Uh, that, is, that is not not his favorite type of documentary. I, I would like to know when was the last time I recommended anything that Mike D'Angelo liked. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna assume that he is never going to uh, li- like any of my your next picture show things. And, and you know what? That's fine. Us. That's fine. He likes us. <laughs> Hi, Mike. <laughs> Scott, what about you? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so um, I had occasion to revisit the Sarah Polly documentary stories we tell because it was just put up on the Criterion channel. And I think that I 
I mean, I certainly liked it quite a bit at the time. I think I underestimated just what a, a great achievement it is. And I think it's because I was sort of caught up in the story. And in the story, if, if you haven't seen it, is sort of a, about a family history. I mean, it starts with about, uh, you know, Sarah Polly puts her her father and her siblings in front of the camera and other relevant parties to talk about her late mother. And then they sort of get around to an issue surrounding, you know, Sarah's, Sarah Polly's parentage. I mean, that's kind of the, the surprise that sort of sprung. And it's sort of the reason why the documentary exists is in reaction. Is it the media sort of caught on to this story and then she made this document sort of incorporated in the documentary and it's a riveting story and it's in it, 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 but it struck me it is very personal you know she polly was you know an actress from a very young age but she became known to many people for her performances in two really superb adam O'Goyan films one called exotica the other the sweet hereafter and in both of those films she plays teenagers who who are bearers of secrets and of and also of fiction secret sort of secrets and lies and that sort of feeds into the fabric of stories we tell about uh which as the title implies is about how people come to a story from various perspectives and those perspectives don't always interlock contrast in ways that are often self-serving to the storyteller um but then she has a lot of really interesting formal touches that I don't think I appreciated as much at the time. Uh, 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 things that she, lies that she tells in a way with, with a camera, with recreations, uh, with things that look like legitimate home movie footage, but are in fact um, not, not uh, things that she made up herself. And so it's, a, it's also ends up being an interrogation of the documentary form. So uh, if you haven't seen Stories We Tell, I think you should, should certainly see it. If you have seen Stories We Tell, maybe you'll want to go back to it like I did, and, and, uh, or maybe you just caught everything the first time. But I, I think there's a lot to unpack in that movie and appreciate in that movie. And uh, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed catching up with it again so stories would tell do you know she hasn't acted in a film in 10 years that's interesting yeah uh and then yeah uh, hasn't really directed thing in, in a little bit but hopefully we'll see more from her soon yeah she's a good director yeah i, I like i like take this waltz i like that movie that she did with with uh michelle williams and right? yeah is, it, is that on uh criterion now too or because i haven't take seen this, that take one. this yeah. waltz uh yeah. no i haven't no, seen the, that one the stories we tell is um so uh yeah t- uh, i would check that out if you haven't seen it And that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will drop on March 2nd and 9th. Keith, what do we have on tap? On the next episodes of The Next Picture Show, we'll be discussing two movies about starting a new life on a country farm and how that's not always as easy or pleasant in practice as in theory. First up, we'll discuss Jean de Florette, in which Gerard Depardieu plays an idealistic hunchback who inherits a farm and decides to create a new life for himself and his family only to run into harsh conditions, small-town prejudice, and the machinations of a wealthy vintner played by Yves Montand. The first of a two-film series, Jean de Florette became an arthouse sensation in 1986. His pairing companion, Minari, would likely become an arthouse sensation in 2021, where more arthouses open. But Lee Isaac Chung's semi-autobiographical film about growing up as a son of Korean immigrants trying to start over in rural Arkansas will likely find an appreciative audience in the virtual space anyway. It's terrific. 
and we hope you'll join our discussion of both films. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Lost in America, Nomadland, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave us a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Tasha Robinson. I am the film and TV editor at Polygon.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Keith? Um, I'm a freelance writer. You can find my uh, – I'm on Twitter at kphips 3000 which I, I linked all my clips. I write for places like uh, The Ringer, GQ, TV Guide, uh, Vulture, Polygon. Um, I, I, as I always say, I'm all over the place. And also, I, I'll plug a, a podcast appearance. I was on an episode of uh, um, a podcast called Silver Screen Video, which which builds itself as your favorite video store, but as a podcast, and it was a it was enjoyable. Uh, it talked about uh, it just talked about you know film criticism, my career, and also a little preview of the Nicolas Cage book uh, I'm writing. Uh, so if you ever thought I enjoy the Next Picture Show, but I hate all the hosts except for Keith, then that's a, <laughs> it's a perfect guest appearance for you to listen to. Uh, Genevieve, how about you? Uh, I am the deputy TV editor at Vulture.com, and I am on Twitter and Instagram, and I think that's it, at Genevieve Kosky. Scott? Uh, I'm on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. You can find my I'm a freelance writer. You can uh, film and TV. You can find my work at the New York Times, uh, Guardian, uh, The Ringer, uh, other fine publications, Vulture. And, uh, and I also am the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope's Musings blog, which has been active lately we've revived it quite a bit and in fact that uh, we re- and we recently had an essay that i wrote on miss 45 uh which is kind of you know we had talked about in connection with promising young woman and so i decided to kind of revisit that film that inspired an essay and we have some really really good stuff in the pipeline so i'm excited about that you can stay updated on the next picture show by visiting nextpictureshow.net and via twitter at nextpicturepod you can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. And please consider also rating and reviewing us, which will help others find your favorite movie podcast. Thanks to Dan the Bake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Going places we may never